Hey everyone, we have a great show for you today on the Original Strength Podcast. This one could be one of my favorites, and I do love them all, but I really love this one. I am talking to Coach John U. Bacon, and Coach Bacon is a fire starter. And what I mean by that is, when you listen to this, he's going to set you on fire. You're just going to want to get out of your seat and go do something, like lead. He has a new book coming out this week, and it's this week if you listen to it, the week that the book actually came out. But it's this week uh, for me. A new book coming out this week called Let Them Lead, a phenomenal book about his real-life story about taking a hockey team that was dead last in the entire country and turning their, their team around in three years to where they were one of the top teams in the state of Michigan. But that's not the amazing part. He did this by equipping a group of young men to become true leaders. And again, the book is called Let Them Lead. You're going to love the story. You will see it in a movie theater one day. Check it out, guys. This is the Original Strength Podcast. Pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. Coach Bacon, you have a new book that has just come out called Let Them Lead. And there it is right there. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. And it Unexpected is, lessons in leadership from America's worst high school hockey team. Not making that up, Tim. <laughs> no, and and I will. So everything I know about hockey, I learned from the movie Happy Gilmore. Um, so, <laughs> so I don't know a lot about hockey. But what I do know is, is your book is based off of your real story, and I think it could be. A, I think one day it's probably going to be like a major Hollywood movie, like like to the level of remember the Titans kind of style. It is such an amazing story. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, we're getting some attention like that, actually. Um, I'll, I'm going in reverse order here, but uh, Dan Shaughnessy, the famous columnist for the Boston Globe, just said over the weekend, this is Ted Lasso meets Mighty Ducks, which yes. guess, who Ted Lasso, guess who Ted Lasso is, by the way. <laughs> Yours truly. And uh, we already have uh, Jim Bernstein and I. He did D3 Mighty Ducks. Um, he did Renaissance Man with Danny DeVito. Uh, he and I are working on a script right now with Eddie Rubin, a hotshot producer. So um, nothing's been purchased yet, but uh, we're going in the right direction. So we'll see what happens there. But to back it up, the story you're talking about, of course, um, worst player in school history, yours truly. And the team, by the way, is the Ann Arbor Huron River Rats. I'm not making that up. There are a million pioneers and lions and tigers out there. There's only one high school team named the River Rats. And we're it. So go figure on that one. Worst player in school history. I played 86 games uh, with the fewest goals, zero. How about that? And uh, I played forward, man, so that's not very good. Uh, so what happens next? I take over a team that has not won a game in a year and a half. They're zero, 22, and three. Zero is where the wins go. According to some website, we ranked dead last in the nation. So that was pretty embarrassing. So what do you have? You have the worst player in school history joining you know, with zero goals joining the worst team in school history with zero wins. Yes, this is definitely the combination. Even Ted Lasso didn't take it that far. So, <laughs> so that's what we're down to. So, but it did work as you know, and that was the fun part. So it is like, it's not that two wrongs made a right, but two seemingly. <laughs> you can say it, you can say it, Tim. <laughs> two losers make a right, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think you made it better by saying it that way, but yeah. Look on paper, I can't lie. I can't deny it. There it is. But the but the the experiences you had and the lessons you learned from that, I mean, they were they were huge. I mean, I'm t- the the book Let Them Lead. I mean, it's a it's a great book on on leadership and life lessons. 
Appreciate that. And look, I mean, what Bernstein said, and uh, he teaches screenwriting at the University of Michigan, also on the side. He said, if a sports movie is about sports, it stinks. And he's right. Rocky is not about boxing. Rocky is oh. about David and Goliath. It's about the underdog. You know, Miracle, same thing, of course. And Happy Gilmore, it's about a lot of things, but hockey is not really one of them. But uh, this is about, you know, people who are, the coach is down, the team is down. What do you do? How do you make the best out of this? How do you lead in a tough situation? And the answer is, honestly, what I basically followed was the formula of your favorite teacher in high school or grade school. I'll put you on the spot here, Tim. Who was your favorite teacher? In which, in what, in which? Any grade you want. Honestly, uh, Mr. Hunt, and he was my art teacher. How about that? Uh, that probably in high school then, or? It was actually uh, around uh, fifth grade. No kidding. And what do you remember about Mr. Hunt? He, 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 he paid attention to me and he always encouraged me and he would do, he would, he would keep tabs on me. Like, so, you know, art for me wasn't elected then, but he would always check up on me. And, and even, Very. even when I left that school, he sent me a, uh, a Christmas postcard, wow. you know, like, you know, I love it, Mr. Hunt. I yeah. think he's awesome. <laughs> he was a great teacher, but I always felt, I felt good around him. Mm -hmm. That goes a long way. I'm willing to bet also, though, he was not a pushover. He's probably, he had, he had pretty high expectations, I bet. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, he, he, he was, he was not a pushover at all. You couldn't, I mean, he, and he didn't let anybody push him around whatsoever. There you go. Well, I asked that question by accident about 10 years ago when I was speaking in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, I don't know why I asked it, to be honest, but I'm glad I did, because I've asked it almost every speech since. Um, and I've asked it since around the United States, in Sao Paulo, in Santiago, Chile, in English, Espanol, and Portuguese, Tim, and never, ever is there, and the answer could be, you know, second grade teacher, could be high school calculus, could be, you know, college French, whatever, could be anything. Uh, no consistency there at all. Um, but they're never the easy teacher, and they always cared completely. So that's kind of the whole thing boiled down. What worked, I had very high expectations, uh, but I cared about them a great deal. And you don't balance those things. You go 100% in both directions at once, basically. And uh, that's what you do. And by the way, I've checked out your podcast. You're kind of coaching your, your followers here. You're their favorite coach, essentially. And that's what they're picking up on. I see behind you the great line, uh, am I feeding love or fear? Uh. Dude, that's it. I mean, <laughs> in some ways, leadership boils down to these things. Uh, when I was, started working on some Hollywood stuff, uh, my agent said, um, two ways Hollywood uh, movies get made. One is fear, the other is passion, and fear never works. <laughs> and I thought that's kind of it right there. So, uh, so that's what we're trying to do here. Coaching is coming with very high expectations, but care about them. And I'm still in touch with these guys 17 years later. We still have a barbecue every summer in my backyard. I go to their weddings, they come to my barbecue. Their kids are now older than my kid. My kid's six, their kids are eight or nine. They give me parenting advice, Tim, and I have to take it. So. But I love these guys, and that's without that, it's not going to work. So, the 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 story is amazing. When when you wrote, sat down to write the book, who was your intended? Like, who is this book for? I mean, because mm -hmm. I think everybody's going to love the story. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate that. It's kind of a two things at once, uh, maybe three things. It's a sports story, so hopefully, get hockey fans and so on. But that's the least of it, in my opinion. Uh, two is just a dramatic story. If you want to see, you know, underdogs up against it, some amazing characters, some amazing scenes um, and stories, we have a lot of that. And the third level is 
basically a leadership book. So before and after each chapter uh, is the advice of my great editor, Rick Wolf, who did Jack Welch's book from the gut. He's done about 60 New York Times bestsellers. We have three bullet points before and after each chapter to tell you what you're going to get out of this from a business leadership point of view. And uh, so it works on all those three levels. But the level you're talking about, the middle level is the story. That's the one that might become a Hollywood movie. Um, you, no one puts a business leadership book on the silver screen. Um, so who was my audience? Kind of three audiences, I guess. But really, ultimately, my audience was kind of myself and my players. I just wanted to be true to the story. Everything I wrote about here happened. Um, it's accurate. And we know it's accurate because I actually asked my 54 former players to send in their memories and stories and insights. They sent me back 150 pages of stuff and things that I didn't even know in many cases. Or I, could, I remember differently or couldn't have known. So unlike almost every other leadership book you look at, this is the only one I know of where we actually talk to those I was trying to lead and see what they had to say. And that makes it funny. It makes it humble. My mistakes are in here. That's another unusual thing. My screw ups are in here, people, trust me. I got plenty of them. Uh, but you get their point of view and that's a thing. They're the heroes of the story. They're the heroes of the team. They're the heroes of the story. Um, not one kid quit. We had the wor hardest workouts in the state on the team that hadn't won a game in a year and a half and not one kid quit. And I did not cut one player from that team from the previous winless team. So they're the same guys who went 17, four and five, three years later. And, and that's really neat because you start out the book, you're, you're talking about people's complaints about about their staff or their workers or or and it might be that well they don't want to work or they're lazy or you know we all have these ideas and maybe like you know different generations have different ideas about other generations as well like you know baby boomers gen x uh, millennials but your your point of view is just they're not lazy at all they actually want to work hard exactly and that's one of the biggest themes of this is that we underestimate young people today. Um, I heard the same things in 2000. I'm hearing now I teach on the side at the University of Michigan and the same stuff. They're lazy. They're selfish. They're entitled. They don't want to work hard. They want a trophy for showing up every day, blah, 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 blah. And OK, I've seen some of those behaviors. I know what they're talking about. But keep in mind, my team had not won a game in a year and a half. And these guys, not one of them quit. So these are, these are not self-selected Navy SEALs we're talking about. We're talking about the worst team in America. And I was told, warned, that they're lazy and selfish and entitled and unfocused and undisciplined and blah, 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 blah. Well, the secret is they actually want discipline. They actually want direction. They want to be challenged. Uh, what they really want, and I give this upcoming generation a lot of credit, things that motivated my generation, I'm the last of the boomers, uh, I'm 57, um, you know, pay, promotions, prestige, those things motivated us. They don't motivate 25 year olds anymore. Not the way, not most of them. Um, you need to give them a sense of belonging, a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. If you get the intangibles right, these guys will go through walls for you. And these guys really did. And I've tried these theories out since then while teaching at the University of Michigan from 2006 to the present, also Northwestern University in Miami of Ohio. And the same stuff works with these guys too, men and women. Uh, now a generation removed from the generation I coached. I've had 2,000 students at the University of Michigan. I've had five late papers, and I mean five minutes late, still a late paper, you still get an F, and not one of those students dropped out. It's, it's been amazing what these guys will do for you if you light their fires. Well, I think you're definitely a bonfire lighter. 
Um, <laughs> for better, for worse. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to throw a word at you and I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm curious. And I is just want no, not anymore. <laughs> I mean, no, I that, was that, funny, was. that was funny earlier. Trust me. That worked. <laughs> so loser coach, loser team. Yes. <laughs> you said spit it out, Tim. So, um, there you go. But, okay. So, and I just want, I'll give you the word and you give me your take on it or reaction to it. Sure. Uh, culture. Delegation that, yeah, it's got to come from the top, but it's going to be, if you have a culture, it's from them. It's great. Better word would be grassroots. If you have a culture, it's grassroots. Awesome. Like, I, and I, the reason I was asking is because I, there was a, a lot of talk in, in your book about getting your team to, when they're sharing your philosophy, when they're following your lead, when you've instilled in your principles so deep in them where it's, it becomes organic in them, where you don't have to tell them, but where they're telling everybody else then you've created a, a culture. And I, I thought that was really powerful. It's not a culture until they're the ones talking about it. If it's you telling them what their goals are, what your mission statement is, you don't have a culture, you got a business card and those are not the same things. When we're on the track one day and it rains cats and dogs that morning and that sun comes out as 93 degrees, which happens here in Michigan in the summer, there's steam coming off the rubber track. You couldn't even see the goalposts at the far end. The air was too wiggly. And I give him a little rah-rah speech about how we're not going to whine about the weather. We're going to brag about how hot it is today. We're going to break every record we've got. And I'm giving them the whole rah-rah and they're buying it. But one sophomore isn't and he grumbles something. And my captain, Mike Henry, still a great friend of mine, fantastic captain. He turns to the sophomore and says, hey, you play for Huron and it's harder over here. And I thought, that's it. And that was a sign we put on our wall. The whole team rallied behind it. Most of the stuff on our wall were phrases from the players, not from me. Um, and that's when you have a real culture. If it's me just saying everything, you got a coach saying a lot of stuff. Uh, when it's them enforcing it themselves. Look, Navy SEALs don't want lazy, selfish guys in Navy SEALs. They'll enforce that themselves. Peace Corps, I think, runs very much the same way. Uh, they've got a very clear mission, I think. So when they're enforcing their own culture, now you actually have a culture. That's awesome. So, and speaking of that and the, the steamy track day, did you participate in the workouts with your, with your athletes? Uh, every single one. I was younger and fitter back then. <laughs> I can't lie. I was 35 when I took over. Um, everything they did, I did. And the other assistant coach, Mike Lapridge, also did. So on that track, we were in the weight room on the track three days a week for four months before our tryouts even happened. Every player at some point or other puked in that track. I did. Lapper did, we all did, and it was a great motivating thing before the third period. How many of you guys puked on the track this summer? And every hand goes up, my hand goes up, Lapper's hand goes up. I said, okay, I ruined your summer, go ruin their night, because they did not do what you did, and make them pay. And they, then they would, because they're, then they're motivated. So it worked. And I didn't realize how important it was that I ran the stadium steps with them at the Michigan Stadium, ran the track and so on, until I got this feedback years later from them, almost every player mentioned that. And I didn't realize it was that important. Now, if you're a manager at 45 or 50 or whatever, you don't have to go run the track with your people, but you can't ask them to do anything that you're not willing to do yourself. Now they have to do more of it than you do because you can't do everything. Um, but a friend of mine, Ari Weinswig, who runs the world-class Zingerman's Delicatessen here in Ann Arbor, 
That guy runs a $70 million business. They have 12 businesses now in Zingerman's. New York Times, Gourmet Magazine, always gushes about this guy. Ari's got a chapter in his book, uh, Management by Pouring Water. He is the owner, you know, the founder. And he goes around pouring water for the guests. So that's how I find out how we're doing. And he's not too proud. So that stuff works. No, that, I, I noticed that in, in, in the book where you're talking about you can't expect people to do stuff you're not willing to do or you got to do it at least as well as you want them to do it. And I thought, well, dang, Tim, that 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 should tell you to to get off your butt a lot of times and do stuff, you know, when you think you. So a lot of times we're our own problems for the stuff we don't. We don't like that we're seeing in other people, especially especially if we lead an organization. What we don't want to look at too often is ourselves, and I do it here in the book, and I did screw up more than once. And when you screw up, recognize the fact that you screwed up, listen to somebody else, apologize for it, and do your best to make it up. You're going to screw up. Everyone's going to. But like you said, you can't be above the... And man, they smell hypocrisy a mile away. And younger people are less patient with it than we are, older or, older folks. You're you're pretty young, it looks like, but... Uh, uh, it's the water. It's the water. <laughs> the water works, people. The plan is good. Um, but yeah, if hypocrisy is not going to work, my mentor, Al Clark, said when I was coaching for him when I was 22 years old, I said, any advice? He said, don't try to fool these guys. They will know you better than you know yourself by the end of the season. And that's often true. My readers often see things in me that I don't see. Uh, my audience, of course, I've got a podcast now, too, like you, not nearly as big as yours. I just started today. Let them lead by bacon.com. Got four guests on there already. And you're going to be one of those guests, by the way, Tim. You're paying me back. Oh, so, all right. Um, yes. You've been warned. <laughs> uh, but they, I mean, your listeners, they can, they pick up things that we ourselves are sometimes blind to. But uh, just admit it. Pretty easy. And since you were talking about feeding fear and love earlier, um, what does it mean to, to not be afraid to be fired? Good one. And that, look, I freely acknowledge that one's hard, undeniably. In fact, everything I write in this book, all of it's simple and none of it's easy. And don't confuse the two. Doing the right thing, telling the truth is simple. You know what the truth is. Uh, doing that when you're going to pay a price for it, that's hard. And likewise, you have to lead um, as if you don't care about being fired. And I know people out there, spouses, kids, and so on, and you can't get fired. So not everyone's got this luxury, I understand. But the basic rule there is if you are too afraid of losing your job to lead the way you think you should be leading, your people smell it and they know it. They know you're not going all out. They know you're backing off. And guess what? They're going to back off too. So the horrible situation is this, is that if you are afraid of getting fired, all right, you will not do your best and you might get fired anyway. Now what do you have? So almost every great leader I've encountered, they reach a moment of truth where they realize this is not working, round peg in a square hole, and I just have to do it my way and take my chances and I might get fired. Once you get to the I might get fired stage, then all of a sudden you start leading extremely well because you're leading with truth in mind. You're following your moral compass and you're not following policies and procedures. And I realize I can get you in trouble. I, I'm not unaware of this, but you can't lead that way. You gotta lead with your moral compass on, on true north and if you do that and if you still do get fired maybe it's because you belong somewhere else anyway that happened to a friend of mine on my podcast richard sheridan he started he was 43 years old a wife and three kids a house here in ann arbor 
and they downsized and he knew it was going to happen and he got the call and he walks home and says honey i've been fired um not due to performance but uh but there they were so that gave him the chance to start menlo innovations he's written two best-selling books since joy inc is the one of them gotta get him on your podcast he's great um and that opened all the doors and he said if i had not been fired i'd never have the guts to do this so you are right um and a friend of mine susan kane who wrote the great book quiet um the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking you know which side i'm on um <laughs> which i know which side i'm on too i guess <laughs> uh but her next book is called bittersweet and it's about turning pain into progress basically um usually our biggest steps forward are after we get basically punched in the nose um life is going to do that to you sooner or later anyway yes yes it will and you know i'm just personal story one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was getting laid off from from my first job tell us come on man uh, fresh out of college just got married just bought a house um that all this within like a month, uh, I was working for MCI. They got bought by WorldCom and WorldCom did a massive layoff. Uh, and I learned how to swim really quick. But <laughs> I learned all these skills that, you know, that college didn't prepare me for. Um, you know, I took up odd jobs and uh, odds and ends and anyway, found my way uh, into, into the fire department, into personal training, and then blunt branched off from there. Otherwise, I'd follow in the footsteps of my parents with a 30-year job that yep. you know that, that's that's all i knew right and that would have been fine but i read your bio by the way it's fascinating uh, you've thrown the dice more than once clearly um what also i find is essential is the ability the ability to define yourself that was a theory that was not fully formed when i started writing this book and i realized i kept on coming back to that chapter after chapter um if you allow the world to define you uh, you're in trouble because they'll define you all kinds of ways in ways that you don't agree with and on very superficial terms, what kind of car you drive and are you hanging out with the cool kids you know, at the cool table in the lunchroom and blah, blah, blah. It's all that stuff. Um, when you have to define yourself, when you see things in yourself that the world does not see, and when MCI fires you or WorldCom, you better start. And you've every time I've looked at your career, every time you bet in yourself, it paid off. But you can't do that unless you believe in yourself. And each time you do it, you believe in yourself more. So it works. Speaking of that, that was one of the, the lessons in, that I really loved. You were talking about measuring the output of your team, but not what's coming back at your team to let your team define itself and not let the world define. And I thought that was that was powerful. Well, thank you. Um, I got to write that one down, by the way. Um, I'm doing a thing for Malcolm Gladwell coming up and I better get that one right. So outcomes and incomes, basically. Yes. Um, we boiled it down to two rules and really two principles, work hard and support your teammates. And look, I'm taking over a team that has not won a game in a year and a half. Um, so you don't know, I, I could not promise them we're gonna win a game, who knows? I don't know how far down we really are. I mean, if you have zero wins, you could be at minus five or minus 10, you don't know. Right. So uh, we'll find out. Um, but I knew that if we did two things, work hard and support your teammates, then we'd be doing all we could. And we're doing that, then eventually success will follow. And we control those completely. You can't tell me who, who with a straight face can look in the eye and say, working hard does not matter or supporting your teammates does not matter. I mean, those are the two things that matter the most, in my opinion. And who does not want to play in a team where you know that not only are you working hard, but you know the guy next to you is working hard. All right, the woman next to him is working hard. And you all support each other. 
and you have each other's backs and there's no gossip, there's no backstabbing. When you get to the office or the locker room, you know that you're comfortable there and you're safe. Now, those are powerful things. And if I've got that going for us, I'll take my chances versus all the other teams out there. And this allowed us, getting to your point, it's allowed us to focus on what we're putting out there in the world and not what the world is bringing back. We're putting out there hard work and support for our teammates. Now, we might win, we might lose. I don't know. But, but I'm sticking to those two things no matter what. And if we do those, I'll be happy no matter what. If we got our butts kicked by state champion Trenton, 13 to two, and had it happen in our fifth game, my first year, we won three games right away. It was you know, eye-opening and miraculous. Then we get our butts handed to us by Trenton, 13 to two. And the score was accurate, Tim. It was not one of those games that could say, and by the way, you got the accent, of course. Uh, this is not football. <laughs> this is ice hockey where the goals come in increments of one. So it's a slow process. And each time I heard their band play and I knew their fight song by the end of the night, but the guys come in, they're throwing their sticks and their gloves around and they're saying, ah, it's no better than last year and blah, 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 blah. And I said, hey, stop. What's the first rule of here in hockey? And I said, look, I saw it. We got our butts handed to us. I'm not spinning any of that. You can't lie to them. I said, what's the first rule of here in hockey? And they mumble, support, you know, work hard. No, no, what is it? We start yelling it back and forth. I said, that's right. Did you work hard the entire game? And they think about it and then think, actually, we did. Did you guys coast to the bench in the third period when we were down by 10? Did you, uh, did you take the third period off? No, we worked hard the entire game. That's right. Second rule, support your teammates. We start yelling that. Did you do that the entire game? They said, actually, we did. Did you yell at the goalie for 13 goals? No. Did you yell at the defense? No. Did you yell at the forwards for only two goals for us? No. All right. Did you support each other after every goal? Yes, we did. Incredibly. Okay. It will never be harder to do our two principles than it was tonight. Work hard, support your teammates. All right. And I'm proud of you. This was, this was a heroic performance. If we can do that tonight, we can do it any night of the season. We'll do it from now on. And I'm telling you, we're playing those guys again, and it ain't going to be 13 to 2. And the next time it's 7 to 1, and then 6 to 2. And then finally, at the end of our second year in the regional finals at Trenton's Rink, it was 3 to 2. The game was even, shots were even, and their fans gave my players a standing ovation. So that's what it means to focus on what you can control and not on the fact that, look, Trent is better than us and pucks bounce and referees do things and so do goalies. You don't control the weather. You don't control so many things. But you, you're, what you put out in the world is entirely up to you every day you wake up. You control that and you control enough. Man, I almost want to close it on that because that was strong, but I got one more question. Sure. Um, and I'm going to go back to the story because I'm not sure this is – I just don't, and if it's in there, I just don't remember it. But when you got hired for this team that had, was the last in the country, the, like the absolute bottom, I think it was 256 teams. 1,256. 12, oh gosh. <laughs> I knew I, I, I yeah, up. It's worse than you think by a thousand. <laughs> what, what were the expectations for you? Like, what was the, the what was the school's expectations on you? not your expectations for your team, but what were their expectations for you when they hired you with this team? They were very different than mine. The school's expectation was failure. The first vote of the two finalists, me and the other candidate, were four to two for the other candidate. Voting against me was the athletic director who had been my eighth grade algebra teacher, a good friend of mine, her secretary, one of the parents, and the incoming captain. So those are four people you don't want voting against you. Two for me was another parent, 
and the team trainer who was convinced that I should be the coach. So he would not take no for an answer and kept hammering uh, the other four until finally one of them, the athletic director, my old algebra teacher, uh, flipped her vote, made it 3-3, and the principal picked me as a tiebreaker only because I'd gone to Huron. He didn't know much about me or hockey, but whatever. And when I was picked, the players weren't happy. The parents admitted in letters to me that they were pretty upset. So failure was the expectation. And why not? This guy's got zero goals, has never been a head coach. He's taken over a team with zero wins. Who would not predict failure in that case? Um, my expectations were that we were going to create, I didn't have a number in mind, number of wins, all state players, how many rivals we have to beat, playoff games, you know, all this stuff. I had in my, in my vision that I know what a great team looks like and feels like, that they absorb the culture, they enforce it themselves, will be a very hard team to beat. We're going to work extremely hard. Uh, we're going to have fun with each other. We're going to look forward to coming to the rink. And when we're done, it's going to be a family, an experience they look back on 10, 20, 30 years from now and draw strength from. And it's a great line from Jerry Hanlon, an old assistant coach at Michigan football years ago when Jim Harbaugh, then the quarterback, asked him, what kind of team are we going to have this year, coach? And he said, I don't know. Come back in 20 years and I'll tell you. That's when I'll know what kind of husbands you've been, fathers, people in the community, in your churches, in your synagogues, and so on, what kind of people you really were. That's when I'll know what kind of program we had. And that's how I feel about it. I didn't, I could not write, have written this book after I finished coaching. I had to wait 15 years, basically. Because now these guys are 35, 37, 38. They work for the Department of Homeland Security, eighth grade junior high school teacher, vice president of a company, a big one in Atlanta. Uh, they've done extremely well in all kinds of fields. And now you see what kind of people they are and that this experience mattered for them. So my expectation was it could take me five years to turn this around and that's what it's gonna look like. And it actually took three years because I grossly underestimated the people I was working with. Well, coach, I just gotta say, I know, I know for a fact that they made a huge difference in your life. Oh, but, no question. But it is undeniable that you made a huge difference in, in their lives. Um, well done. <laughs> uh, it's an amazing story that I don't know, it'll give you, it's, it's, it gives you the feel goods. You know what I mean? The, it just gives you the feel goods. Uh, amazing book, uh, Let Them Lead uh, from an Amazing Leader. Coach, Tim, thank, thank you, you very thank much. From you, a great leader, that means a lot. And thanks to you and your many, many followers. I appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, this has been awesome. My pleasure. Let Them Lead by Bacon.com. There you go. And that will be in the notes, guys. Guys, check this book out. And I, I look forward to the movie one day. And you <laughs> will too. You're not careful. You'll be, a, you'll be an extra in there. You'll be the referee telling me to shut up. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend.